Anxiety is very common. Uh, before the pandemic, we said 30% of the general population had anxiety. Since the pandemic, we think that number's gone up 40%. Mm. Wow. It's wild. I think it's more common than not. So if you have anxiety and you're listening to this, I want to say there's nothing wrong with you. You're actually responding normally to a lot of the stress and trauma that we've been through in this world. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. We are back to explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada. And we are joined today by psychotherapist and Christian counselor Anne-Marie Colvert from MindJoy Counseling in Lindsay, Ontario. Anne-Marie, welcome. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. So Anne-Marie, we want to get into feelings and emotions, and this is something that we're not always the best at embracing. I talk a lot about how to feel your feelings when feeling is foreign. Hmm. It's a mouthful. Yeah, a bit of an alliteration too. Yes, it is, but it's because it's a common experience. It's foreign for a lot of people to know how to feel. So how do you go about doing this and why should you go about doing this? Maybe first off. Yeah, the main reason is because many of us were taught to think our feelings and not how to feel our feelings. And emotions need to be emoted. They actually need to do something because they're a very physical thing and they need an outlet. They need output. Hmm. How do you do this? Well, there's a few ways that you can do it and it does take practice. So one of the first things you can do is practice what we call distress tolerance. So emotions, sometimes we avoid them because they're distressing. They're painful. We don't like them. They're messy. But if we practice distress tolerance, an example of that might be riding your emotions like a wave. So for example, anxiety, it's coming upon you. You don't like it. Picture it like a wave. It's coming towards you. You're feeling the wave and then the wave crashes over you. Let it crash over you. Ride the wave rather than fighting it and getting caught up in the current. So that'd be one way to feel your feelings. Interesting. What's another way? Another one is practicing naming them. It might sound simple, but just naming our feelings. And you can literally print out things from the internet, like emotion wheels and, and things to practice learning language for your feelings. But even taking a moment saying, wow, I feel really confused right now, or I feel really sad. When we name an emotion, we actually tame an emotion. So that gives us opportunity to not only feel it, but it also makes it lose a little bit of the power just by naming it. Hmm. You know, along these lines, a lot of us just aren't, aren't trained to do this. I find myself squashing these emotions, mm-hmm. especially if I'm in like in a workday mode and I need to feel like I need to power through to get a task done. Mm-hmm. What do you recommend in that sort of context? Yeah. So sometimes I'll say to people, because we a lot of us are very busy, especially yeah. in this season of life. Sometimes it's literally, can I take a five minute vacay? Can I just take a couple minutes to just check in with myself and feel? If you don't feel safe enough because you're too busy, that's also okay. Mm -hmm. But do it intentionally at nighttime, before bed, journal, sit quietly, listen to music, do something that gives space and safety to Mm -hmm. feel how you're feeling. You'll sleep better. You'll feel better. That's helpful. What are some other ways that you would go? Yeah, another one I would recommend, and this can be really common if you've had a lot of stress or trauma in your life, is practice naming how you physically feel first. So rather than starting with, oh, I'm sad or I'm anxious, you would notice, wow, I feel a lot of tension in my chest or I feel a sinking feeling in my stomach. Sometimes we notice how we're physically feeling. It can help unlock how we're emotionally feeling. That would be actually a trauma coping mechanism is that we try to block them. But by noticing how we're physically feeling in our body, we can unlock emotions. And that can be very therapeutic and very healing if we do it in a safe way. 
Okay. And Emery, can you just explain like, why do our bodies give us these indicators before our emotions do? Yeah. When people go through a lot of stress or trauma, they tend to live in their head Hmm. and there's a disconnect between their head and their body. So it's actually hard to recognize how we're feeling. I've been there, you know, when I'm so busy, I'd sometimes I can go a whole day before I realize I'm angry or I'm sad or I feel lonely just because I'm too busy or because I'm too stressed. When we listen to our body, instead of going top down from my head to my feelings, I'm going bottom up from my body to my feelings. And it's like a gateway that can unlock that emotion that trauma and stress try to suppress. So fascinating. Anne-Marie, we have in the Bible uh, recordings of Jesus' life on this earth. And if we're made in God's image and Jesus is God, what can we take away from his life when it comes to understanding our emotions? Yeah, I, you know, I'm so amazed by Jesus. You know, he's the king of the universe. But when he was in human form, he emoted powerfully. He was so anxious, he sweat blood. He cried at the funeral of a friend he was about to raise from the dead. Mm. You know, he was so angry, he tossed temple tables. Like he, he actually modeled emoting emotions and showed us it was safe and meaningful. And I think that's an example we can learn from rather than feeling like they're bad or messy and we shouldn't. I hear that a lot. We shouldn't feel I should just get over this. We're actually invited to process those things with God. And it's all over scripture. A third of the Psalms are David, a man after God's own heart, Mm -hmm. lamenting, being angry, being sad, being distraught. And he emotes it. And that helps him get back to faith and hope. Yeah, it really does when you look at it that way. These feelings uh, we can access also when we hack the hormones. Yes. Can you explain that? Yeah, so uh, we are spirit, soul, and body, and our body is a big part of our mental health. And in our body, we have hormones or neurochemicals that can actually change our mood. Uh, Dopamine is a pretty common one. So you can hack your dopamine by uh, doing a task, you know, having a checklist. And when you can check off that checklist, your body says, ah, that feels really good. I've got Mm. some reward hormone, you know, making your bed in the morning. We've done studies that show that people that make their bed every morning tend to be more successful in life. Wow. Part of that is because they're actually starting their day with a dopamine successful, I accomplished something. It's a reward. Mm. So there's lots of little things, trying a new recipe, learning a new task that can trigger that dopamine. Yeah. So what does dopamine do? Uh, Dopamine is a messenger in our brain. I am a social worker and not a biologist, but what I understand is it can really affect how we feel. It's transmitting electrical impulses between neurons in our brains. And so uh, not enough dopamine can actually be a culprit of why some people have depression or anxiety or other mental health issues. So we can create more dopamine or get our dopamine to work a little better, a little harder by doing things that trigger that reward mechanism. Some people do that in an unhealthy way. You know, when people use substances or turn to things like pornography or shopping, Mm -hmm. sometimes that's giving a dopamine trigger that's possibly unhealthy, Mm -hmm. but there's a lot of healthy ways we can get the same effect. What else is there besides dopamine? There's also serotonin. It's another happy hormone. And in Canada, we're at risk at not getting enough because the sunlight is one of the main sources Mm -hmm. of it. So uh, sitting by a window, even in the middle of winter can help. You know, I tell people who work in an office building on your lunch, go outside, get some sunshine. Even if it's cold out, you're still going to get the serotonin. A lot of people have light therapy lamps in their office space to help with that as well. We're wired to need sunshine. The struggle is real living in a basement. (laughs) It is. It's a hardship. (laughs) You're not, you're not wrong. And during a pandemic too. (laughs) Yes. The isolation has affected us. There's no question. Okay. What else is there? There's dopamine, there's serotonin. There's oxytocin. That's called the cuddle or the love hormone. When a woman has a baby and she looks into her newborn's eyes, 
oxytocin is released in both her and the newborn. And it makes us feel loved. It makes us feel safe. It can be a really helpful thing to activate when you're struggling. And you can activate it by getting a hug or giving yourself a hug that literally activates oxytocin. You can literally activate it by looking in the eyes of a child. We're all wired Mm -hmm. that way. If you look into the eyes of a child, your body will release oxytocin. It feels nice. It feels loving and it helps us. Do you give yourself a lot of self hugs? I have been. I try to practice what I preach and a lot of the tools I teach, I use for myself. Yes, absolutely. If you drive with one hand, <laughs> could listeners try this out like while they're while they're at the wheel? Now, the health and safety people might not approve of this message, so I will be, I will be careful. No liability concerns, please. But uh, I will tell people, even if you can't do the self-hug, so I, I teach a self-hug where you hold yourself. If you even just put your hand over your heart, even that releases oxytocin. And research shows that when we put our hand over our heart, it's like we're giving our heart a hug. It literally helps us feel better. So if you're driving off the record, um, so insurance is not mad at me, and you have one hand on your heart while you're driving, even that could help. A lot of people tell me they do that when they're in a meeting at work, they're having a hard time. No one knows what they're doing. They're just resting their hand on their chest, Mm -hmm. but they're actually helping themselves feel calm and safe. We need that. What else? Is there anything else? Um, And then there is endorphins. Endorphins we hear a lot about with exercise. So exercise is one way to trigger endorphins, which are another happy chemical in our brain. Um, A lot of people with depression struggle with movement. They feel very uh, lethargic, very unmotivated. They don't have a lot of hope. And so they don't want to exercise. Mm. And we do know that exercise can be helpful for all of us. It also releases uh, stress hormones for many, many reasons. Exercise is helpful and because of the endorphins. So it literally gives us happiness to a certain extent when we exercise. Eating spicy food, eating dark chocolate, these things can actually release endorphins for us. Mm. So you advocate for dark chocolate over white chocolate for this reason? Now, see, I actually like both. Both have good uh, benefits, but dark chocolate tends to release more endorphins. Mm. And the difference between endorphins and dopamine is what? Well, they're very similar, and I'm not sure if you saw their chemical makeup, they would look a little different, okay. but ultimately they're similar. One is more reward, one is more happiness. Dopamine is more reward. Yes. Endorphins is more happiness. Right. Both make you happy, but for different reasons. Right. Silicon Valley plays on the, the dopamine more. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and we want to just delve into some of the, the real problems that if we step back and really feel our emotions and we can see that there's actually something brewing here. And these are typically known as anxiety and depression. Let's start with anxiety, uh, coping skills for this broad problem across the world. Yeah. Anxiety is very common. Uh, Before the pandemic, we said 30% of the general population had anxiety. Since the pandemic, we think that number has gone up 40%. Mm. Wow. It's wild. I think it's more common than not. So if you have anxiety and you're listening to this, I want to say there's nothing wrong with you. You're actually responding normally to a lot of the stress and trauma that we've been through in this world. Mm. So ways to cope with anxiety. And I I share ways to cope. There are also ways to heal. Um, So if people really struggle, I do invite them to seek help for those healing ways. In the meantime, learning ways to calm your nervous system can help. So we all have a nervous system in our body. If you've heard of the fight or flight response, that's part of our nervous system. It's there to protect us if there's a danger. We could either fight the danger or we could flight. We could run away from the danger. People with anxiety tend to be stuck in the fight or flight response. So if we can find ways to calm that response, turn off the alarm, which is a very physical thing, we can start to heal from anxiety and we can certainly cope with it. Uh, Deep breathing is one way to calm your nervous system. We hear about it all the time. People 
think it's overused, so they tend not to do it, but deep breathing, slow from your belly, in through your nose, out through your mouth, extending the exhale, that actually builds the muscle in your body that's opposite of the fight or flight, your Mm. parasympathetic nervous system, your parachute. So if you Google it online, there's lots of videos that can show you how, but skills to calm your nervous system can help with anxiety. So on the one hand, you have this extreme, which is where anxiety lives, someone who's fight, flight, fight, flight. But then you also have people who, to cope with overwhelming emotions, will try to just turn them off and repress them. And I've heard things like, I've lost the ability to feel. Mm. So are they just, have they gotten to this place where they can't even activate the fight or flight? Yes, what can happen, and we see this actually a lot with childhood trauma, if something happens in your life that you can't fight and you can't run away from, your body will go to the next coping mechanism, which is the freeze response. So there's fight and flight, and then there's freeze. And freeze is system shutdown. It's the equivalent of when an animal plays dead in the wild. And when people are in the freeze response, they tend to go numb. They can't feel their feelings as much. They might feel sadness, but they can't really access other emotions. And it's because their nervous system, which is there to protect them, has shut down from too much overwhelm. Mm. And sometimes this is a gift, like what we were talking about in my scenario in a recent day. But to live in that, Mm-hmm. is not healthy, right? Right. Yeah. In the short term, again, if like a chair, if a bear is chasing me in the wild and my only option is to play dead, I need that freeze response to protect mm-hmm. me. If I've had an overwhelming day at work, that freeze response can help me shut down a little bit, wow. take some quiet time, rest. But some people stay stuck there because they've been through too much and they don't have the resources to heal and to cope. Mm-hmm. That's the freeze response. Okay. So that goes back to those Hacking the hormones. Yes, hacking your on. hormones, taking care of your nervous system. All these things can help. Mm. So anxiety is one mental illness that can come from beneath, but then depression is another one. Yes. What are some coping skills that you've diagnosed as being helpful here? Yeah, there's actually one that has a little acronym that I like to share. It's called TIP. So it's my tip Ooh. for depression. Okay. Oh. And the first T stands for temperature oh you got it see david heard me speak earlier good memory (laughs) (laughs) and what do the rest stand for well with even with the temperature the idea is a temperature change so you know taking a shower a cold shower or a hot shower putting an ice pack on your chest even that temperature change can shift your nervous system a little bit and help with depression in the moment Hmm. the i stands for intense exercise We know that exercise releases endorphins, the happy chemicals. We know that exercise is good for your nervous system, releasing trapped stress. So exercise for a lot of reasons can be helpful. And in fact, I use another analogy here. When you see a pond and the water doesn't move, what happens to it? Good question. It kind of gets like murky. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it gets kind of gross. Right. Our bodies are about 65% water. So if we don't move, we get kind of murky. We get kind of gross and then we feel gross. Mm. So intense exercise can also be helpful because it literally is moving the water around, helping us feel fresh and more likely to feel happy. So intense exercise is the I in tip. The first P stands for paced breathing. Paced breathing, okay. Yeah, so if you've probably heard of deep breathing, it's really helpful for your nervous system. It's really helpful for your mental health. So doing deep breathing from your belly, not your chest. When we're stressed, we breathe from our chest. Babies, Mm. when they're born, you watch them, their bellies go up and down. We're born breathing from our belly. So breathing from your belly, slowing down your exhale. That's the key. You don't need to do four, four, four breathing. You don't need to time yourself. The key is breathing 
in less than you breathe out. And that will slow down the stress. It'll engage your peace response in your body. And that can also help with depression and anxiety. Then the last P of tip is paired muscle relaxation. And this is a tool you can use. You can Google videos on YouTube. You can get an app to help guide you through it. But what you do is you tense certain muscle groups from head to toe. Just take a moment, create tension. So for example, I might create tension in my forehead, just really tense those muscles for like a couple seconds and then slowly relax them. If you do that from head to toe, your whole body will feel better. It'll feel more relaxed. It'll release the tension that you've been carrying. Hmm. So tip. Tip. Temperature change, intense exercise, paced breathing, paired muscle relaxation. Any other skills that you would say that are are worthwhile to keep in mind when you're diagnosing depression? Yeah, well, I do recommend if somebody has depression to seek out support um, because that's when you can go deeper because depression is often a result of buried pain, very deep pain or trauma. But to cope with it, another one that can be helpful is nostalgia. Really? Yeah, so a lot of people when they struggle, they might go to a show they're really comfortable with or familiar with. If Christmas wasn't a negative experience for you growing up, a lot of people feel happier around Christmas. The reason is nostalgia. Nostalgia is safe, familiar, reliable, predictable. It brings comfort. So, you know, for me, I won't give away my age, but uh, The Little Mermaid was a long time ago for me. Mm -hmm. But even if I watch it now, it evokes a little bit of nostalgia. It lifts my mood a little bit, and that can be helpful for people with depression. That's really interesting, Anne-Marie. Let's shift gears to sleep. If someone's getting good sleeps at night, is this a indicator that they would have decent mental health? Yeah, it can be. Um, so uh, people who are in depression sometimes sleep too much because again, their body is in shutdown mode. Okay. But a lot of other people don't get enough sleep because of stress, because of anxiety. When you've got stress in your body, you've got a lot of cortisol. We talked about happy hormones earlier. Mm-hmm. Cortisol is a stress hormone. When you've got, it's also the hormone responsible for waking you up in the morning. So oh, when you have I too need mu- some more of that sometimes. <laughs> Me too. But when you're stressed, you know, you might wake up at three in the morning, have intermittent sleep. So strategies to help you sleep better can help. Hmm. And what are some of those strategies? Yeah, I can share a few because actually sleep is so foundational to our mental health. Like anybody who doesn't get enough sleep can struggle with their mental health. And it's biblical. You know, rest is holy. He gives his beloved sleep. We're meant to sleep well. So one thing is ensure your bedroom invites sleep. So with all the working from home and doing the school from home, a lot of people are doing work in their bedroom but then our brain associates it with work hmm. and doesn't isn't able to rest at nighttime. So if you can, if you've got a big enough house to have your work outside of your bedroom, keep your bedroom for sleep. Keep it for rest. You know, don't paint the walls, you know, neon orange. Create an a sleepy, comfortable, spa-like environment if you can. Yeah, what about people that have TVs in their bedrooms and sort of veg out there at nighttime? Well, one of my other tips is to watch screen time. So we do need to be careful with that. Uh, it's not terrible, especially if you're watching nostalgic things yeah, and yeah. Com- comfy <laughs> things. But it can stimulate you a little bit more than you want, right? Right before bed, as opposed to a book could be better. Absolutely. So uh, any screens, phone, tablets, TV, technically, it's not a stationary image. It's not a static image. It's a very flashing, very rapid image that our brain interprets as stationary. But what it's doing is it's stimulating our brain. So mm. people who say, oh, I can watch TV and fall off to sleep. Yes, you can because you're exhausted, but technically it's preventing your brain from entering the restorative stage of sleep. So I do recommend people, if they can, to avoid screen time at least an hour before bed. Read a book instead Mm because a book actually is stationary and it's not triggering your brain. 
So this is why sometimes you feel like you're about to fall asleep on the couch. And then when you actually go to bed, you're not able to get to sleep. You're wired. You're wired from what you watched and you have created this false illusion in your head yeah. that you're able to go to sleep, but you're not. Yeah. I love screen time. I think we all do. We find it restful because our body gets to relax. Our brain gets yeah. to relax to a certain extent, but it's actually stimulating us unconsciously. Hmm. So is like a TV in your bedroom just like a brutal combination then because you got the screen time right before you fall asleep and it's in a room where your body's like, oh, I can I can do recreation in here. I can do work in here. Now, I don't want your listeners to get mad at me. Okay. If you've got, I've, I have a TV in my bedroom. No, you don't. I do. It just, I never did. I was always against it. Last year, I was like, oh, what the hey? I'm going to get one. Oh, yeah, boy. Yeah, yeah. So, no, no judgment. If you know yourself, you know your limits. Okay. I would recommend, though, not watching it to fall asleep. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I'm transparent. Uh, anything else that you'd offer on better sleep? Yes, absolutely. A little bit of exercise before bed can help actually, even five minutes. Right before bed? About a couple hours, you know, you know, yeah. I, I wouldn't do it later than like 8 p.m., let's say. Okay. But even five minutes of intense aerobic exercise, it's going to get your heart pumping. But what it's going to do is it's going to release that excess cortisol, that stress hormone mm -hmm. that makes you alert. We want that out of our body before we go to sleep so we can get a good night's sleep. It also makes you kind of tired. Like it might for a little bit, you might feel kind of revitalize and in some ways that can make you alert but mm -hmm. overall it helps your body relax more after exercise so a little bit intense exercise can help we've already talked about screen time another one i suggest to help people sleep well is build in mental processing time before bed so when we are really busy we get up we go to work whatever family stuff we go from morning till night and we don't stop that means our brain doesn't have time to compartmentalize our memories, putting them in proper files in our brain. Mm. When we try to go to sleep, have you ever put your head on the pillow and suddenly your mind starts racing? Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's what's happening. Your brain's trying to make sense of everything that happened in the day. If you just take five minutes, I don't know, it can be in the bathroom. I don't know. You can be sitting on the toilet. If you're too busy, just make time. Five minutes where you don't do anything. Just be still. Just relax. It allows all those little marbles in your brain to fall in the proper slots and you're going to get a better night's sleep. Mm -hmm. I like doing it with a tea in my hand. <laughs> yes, absolutely. And then another thing, last thing that I recommend for people is keep something to write on near your bed. If you're like me, your head hits the pillow and you think, oh yeah, I need to do this tomorrow. Oh, and I don't want to forget this. And all that stuff starts to stimulate you and you don't want to forget it. So then you're thinking about it. So have a pad of paper and a pen mm, by your bed, not your good. phone because that's screen time and write it down, get it out of your mind. And that'll give your brain permission to rest. So this is great education. And, and when it comes to putting it into practice, have there been some ways that you talk about certain things that you used to not talk about them this way after having learned what you've learned? Along the way, uh, I have changed my language because I've just learned more helpful ways to say things. And our language is powerful, right? Life and death is in the power of the yeah. tongue. And we used to say things like someone committed suicide. Well, that makes suicide sound like a crime. Now we say they died by suicide. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't say a failed attempt like they should try harder or a successful suicide that they did something right. You know, we, the language needs to be softened and be more trauma informed. Another thing is like really understanding that mental illness is not a lack of faith or a spiritual issue. And that can also change our language. And the body of Christ, you know, we've all stumbled over this one, I think, to a certain extent. And we're learning and there's grace for that. But recognizing that people struggle because they've been through things, mm -hmm. you know, and that God cares about that. So even just awareness of that, I think will permeate naturally into our language. 
That's great. Anne-Marie Colvert, thank you for taking this time. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure. And if you want to find out more on this holistic approach to ministry and mental health, you can check out the show notes that I'll have for you with some of the links to what we've been chatting about today. That's at davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. And with today's episode, we have hit a hundred podcasts. Thank you for your support, for listening and being part of this journey. Uh, The plan from here on out is to take a pause for the rest of 2022 and we'll resume the program in 2023. Thank you and would love your ideas for who you'd like to hear on Culture to Crossroads going forward. 